My wife, Suzette, and I, we, we don't have kids. All right? It's not that we didn't want kids. We did want children, um, and we tried for a long time. After a while, we started looking at other options, you know, in vitro, adoption. Ultimately, the alternatives that we considered, they weren't going to work. But in the midst of all of that, we prayed. We prayed hard, constantly. And I know it honestly feels a little awkward and wrong saying it, especially from the pulpit, but at that moment, I truly felt like God didn't care. That God wasn't there because he was quiet. He wasn't answering us. Because Suzette and I, we don't have kids. Back in the 90s, I used to work as a foster care worker uh, in Chicago. And I remember there was one young girl who was on my caseload. Uh, she and her brother had been placed in foster care right when she was born. Her brother was like a year old. Now, I'll tell you, typically, not to be crass, but infant adoptions, they're simple, easy. Everybody wants to adopt a baby. So that usually happens quickly. But unfortunately, for this young girl, she and her brother, they experienced in three years, three disrupted adoptions, three failed adoptions. The very first one was extremely tragic. Family came, adopted the children, moved to Germany with them, and then sent them back by themselves as infants on a plane because they changed their mind. She and her brother, they eventually, unfortunately, were placed in two different homes um, because we just tried but could not find any place to keep them together. Um, but they never stopped dreaming about one day being reunited as brother and sister being able to live together. And I, I became her caseworker when she was about 11 years old. For 11 years, this young girl had been in foster care. For much of that life, she had never had the chance to live with her brother. And I remember her foster mom told me when I came on as her worker uh, how she and her folks, uh, folks around her were praying, praying that they be reunited for that dream. But it felt like God wasn't listening. At least God didn't seem to be answering. There's a passage in Job chapter 3, verse 20. Job cries out, why, why is light given to one burdened with grief and life to those whose existence is bitter? Basically, Job is asking God, why, why did you even bother to give me another miserable day in my miserable life? Why do I have to suffer the bitterness of, the, of life in the light of one more day? And God does not answer. You know, back in January, Pastor Joey, he kicked off this sermon series, as uh, Melody mentioned, this in, in this book of Job, a book that tries to help us understand that innocent suffering, it is a thing. Innocent suffering is real. It happens. And, and, and the, see, the book of Job, it confirms for those who are reading that retribution, that recompense, that redemption, these are not the only reasons people suffer, because sometimes there is no reason. Sometimes suffering just happens. Sometimes we have to sit in it. Sometimes we need to avoid being, hopefully, miserable comforters. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves that God is still sovereign through all of it, that God is still in control. 
So today what I wanted to do in this chapter, chapter 28, I, I want to shift. I want to shift our focus from the suffering to the silence. Because I don't know about you, but for me, I think sometimes silence can be just as bad, if not worse, than the suffering you might be going through. Feeling like Jesus is not listening can be just as painful as any trial you might be feeling. Thinking that God is not responding to my cries of why, it can make innocent suffering so much more difficult. Now, for those of you who are just joining us in this particular series, I want to set the stage just a little bit, some context, because we have Job and his friends, quote-unquote friends. They have two different theologies. We have a limited theology of Job's friends, his miserable comforters. This limited theology believes that God only works on a retribution principle, that they believe in a tit-for-tat type of theology. There's no room for innocent suffering in their limited theology. Their limited theology believes that if I do something good, then God's going to immediately give me something good. That's the limited theology. On the other side of it is Job's theology, and in Job's theology, or how Job wants to live out his faith, Job's theology is, theology is not based on doing things to get things from God. No, Job's theology is not based on Job wanting stuff from God. Job's theology, it is focused on building a relationship with God because Job wants God. And I need to repeat this because I'll be honest, for me, this context has helped me as I've been trying to wrestle with, study this book in preparation. See, the miserable comforters, their limited theology, it believes that we get what we deserve. Job's theology understands that we actually don't get what we deserve. See, the limited theology of these miserable comforters wants things from God. Job's theology wants God. So the pain that Job is going through, it's not simply loss, loss of things. It is the loss of God. It is the silence of God that is so deafening. A few nights ago, we had dinner with some friends. Um, they, the husband and wife, they were sharing a story with us about a conference call that he had that morning. Uh, and he was walking past his wife. He had his AirPods in his ears. And his wife, not seeing the AirPods in his ears, just started to talk to him. Now, I don't know if you remember the good old days when you actually had physical phones that you would put to your ears so you knew somebody was talking on the phone and where you would be limited to how far the cord could actually take you and just be strung back to the kitchen wall. Or, or, or if, you had, if you were fancy, you had those big old headsets with the microphone in front of you that made you look like you were either air traffic control or Janet Jackson or something. But basically, nowadays, you have these earbuds, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but I don't know whether a person who's walking towards me might be a little bit off or crazy because they're talking, and I don't know if they're talking to themselves or they're talking in their ear. I always say this, thank goodness, and recently learning this, thank goodness that Zoomers, Gen Z, for some reason, talking to phone people on a phone is like a sin. It's extremely sus. They just don't do it. So I don't have to ever worry about a young person. If a young person is just talking, that means they're crazy. Anyway, because he was on this phone call, he has AirPods in, he could not hear her talking to her. He ignored her. And she mistook his silence as anger. She texted him later on to ask what happened, what was wrong this morning. Of course, he had no idea what she was talking about because he had his AirPods in. He ended up 
ignoring her. And of course, because he is who he is, he was wrong. Because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, you know, happy wife, happy life. And so he just had to apologize. Um, but ultimately, the reason I tell this story is because here's the thing. Silence in the midst of a relationship is more painful sometimes than pain. God's silence towards Job was deafening. There's another story uh, that came to mind as I was preparing. Matthew chapter 15 tells the story of a Canaanite woman. And she had a demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus is coming to town, and she's heard about him. And so she goes to Jesus, begging him, please, please, will you help my daughter? And in Matthew, it writes, he writes that Jesus not only did he not answer. Actually, I love the message translation. The message translation says Jesus ignored her. The silence was deafening. I have a feeling that there are likely people here today for whom you are suffering loss, trauma, suffering. Maybe you have people in your lives, people you love that are going through that. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's weariness. And at the heart of this loss, at the heart of this trauma, at the heart of this suffering is a sense of abandonment. Abandonment from God. Jesus is ignoring you. God is silent. So what, what do we do in that silence? What do we do when the silence is so deafening? And this is where I want to look at what Job did. Because what Job did is he stopped. He took a beat and he considered in the silence. That's what chapter 28 shows us. Pastor Joy, he shared something last week that I truly appreciated He said that real Christianity holds doubt and hope hand in hand. He also said he didn't like K-Love, which I won't hold against him. I actually like it. The cheesy DJs, yeah, they're really bad, but the music is fun. But regardless of that, just as doubt and hope, it can be held together, God's deafening silence and God's unconditional love, it can be held hand in hand. The, The reality of Jesus ignoring me in my heart, it can live with the truth that Jesus does love me, that Jesus has redeemed me. And what Job did to hold the pain of that deafening silence with his reverence for our almighty God is stop. You see, the chapters that lead up to chapter 28 that was read today, Job is explaining, Job is defending himself against these allegations and these charges that these miserable comforters are throwing at him. And after Job 28, you'll see that that continues on. But in this chapter, in 28, Job stops. He takes a beat. He changes the tone. He changes the pattern. And he considers in that silence, God's silence. This poem is Job's moment of reflection of God's silence. And in this moment of meditation and of reflection, Job considers what it is that will bring him peace. Job ponders how to restore this broken relationship with God that he so desperately desires. Because remember, as I said before, in Job's theology, the issue is that he desperately wants God, not the things that God has provided. He wants God. And the very first thing that the author of this book wants the reader to understand is that the path to finding that peace, to restoring that relationship, it is dangerous 
and it is difficult. And he paints that picture in verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the ground and copper is smelted from ore. And a miner puts an end to the darkness. He, he probes the deepest recesses for ore in the gloomy darkness. He cuts a shaft far from human habitation in places unknown to those who walk above ground, suspended far away from people. The miners swing back and forth. A food may come from the earth, but below the surface, the earth is transformed as by fire. Its rocks are a secure source of lapis lazuli containing flecks of gold. No bird of prey knows that path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts have never walked on it. No lion has ever prowled over it. The miner uses a flint tool and turns up ore from the root of the mountains. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eyes spot every treasure. He dams up the streams from flowing so that he may bring to light what is hidden. I'm a, I'm a city kid, through and through. Concrete is my friend. The only exposure I've ever had to a mine is actually in Zambia. Sunset Church, we support a community in Zambia. It's called Zimba. Uh, it's through our partnership with Hands at Work. Now, to get to that community, to get to Zimba, from where our short-term mission teams typically stay, we have to pass by these humongous copper mines. That's why I got a chance to learn about them. Now, these mines, they cut deep into the earth, and they draw out as much copper as they possibly can. It takes a while. But, and I'll tell you, these mines, they've destroyed lives. They've killed children, and they've made millions for their owners. The danger and the difficulty, the death and the destruction, for them, is worth it. And so Job uses this illustration, this imagery, to draw a picture of the danger, of the difficulty there is to seeking the thing that is most worthy, and the thing that is most worthy of all danger and of all difficulty it's wisdom. Wisdom is what's going to break the silence. See, remember, Job wants God, right? And, and his heart aches not because of the loss of things. His heart aches because of the loss of God, his relationship. And God's silence, it is ripping him apart. But Job stops. He takes a beat. And he considers his situation. And he realizes this unbelievable deep truth that in his anguish and in his hurt, Job's priority needs to be to seek wisdom. But seeking wisdom is hard. He has to probe, as he wrote, the deepest recesses in the gloomy darkness. He needs to go to places unknown to those who walk the earth. But, but, but wisdom, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Verses 15 to 19, it says clearly how valuable wisdom is. 15 to 19 reads this, Gold cannot be exchanged for it. Silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Gold and glass do not compare with it. And articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for coral and quartz 
not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond pearls. Topaz from Kush cannot compare with it, and it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. Wisdom's value is absolutely immeasurable. Unfortunately, we see, looking at 12 to 14, as much as it's worth it to find wisdom, it is not possible to find it. Verse 12, but where can wisdom, where can wisdom be found? Where is understanding located? <laughs> no one can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. The ocean depths say, it's not in me. Well, the sea declares, I don't have it. Verses 20 to 22, it reiterates the same thing, how impossible it is to find wisdom. Verses 20 to 22 read this, where then does wisdom come from? And where is understanding located? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, we've heard news of it with our ears. Job wants God. And in this desire, Job takes a moment to contemplate God's silence. And Job realizes that he has to seek wisdom to restore his relationship with the creator of the universe, but there's no way for Job to find it. Thank God for God, because God knows the way to wisdom. This is where the poem goes in verse 23. Verse 23, uh, the poet writes, but God understands the way of wisdom, and he knows its location. And God shares the secret to that in verse 28. He said to mankind, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. Simply stated, you find wisdom when you fear God. Now, I'm going to spend a few moments here unpacking this idea. I want to start with the idea of fearing God. Right? Many of you may be familiar with this concept from a biblical perspective, but I want to quickly share for those who who, who, of you who may not be. Fearing God is not the same thing as being afraid of God, right? To fear God is to be in awe of God. To fear God is to revere God. For example, in the English Standard Version of uh, Scripture, Psalm chapter 130, verse 4, it says, uh, but with you there is forgiveness, speaking of God, that you may be feared. The Christian Standard Bible translates the same word instead with, but with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. And that's what fearing God is. So to find wisdom, we are called to revere God, to be in awe of God. That is how we find wisdom. So the next logical question as we unpack this is, so what is wisdom, right? And from God's perspective, wisdom is more than just simply knowing things. There's a passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It says, we know what we have. Uh, that we all have knowledge. Uh, knowledge puffs up, though. Love builds up, right? Knowing how to do things is good. It's a good thing to know how to do things. But wisdom, that's not wisdom. Wisdom is defined by Scripture. There's one verse in Colossians chapter 2 that defines it really well. Paul shares this. He says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Jesus Christ, 
In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah and our friend, he is wisdom. Seeking and revering Jesus is how we become wise. See, the perfect and the blameless Savior, the one who knew no sin and became sin for us so that we might be seen in the eyes of God as sinless, the one who was crucified, the one who, was, who died, the one who was buried, and the one who rose again from the dead three days later. This God-man is wisdom. This is the one who we are called to seek. And we become wise by living what Paul wrote out Later in the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 6 to 7 of Colossians. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, and establishing the faith just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Uh, today we get to celebrate communion together. So I want to wrap up, because it's going to take us a little time. Here's what I'm hoping you will be able to take away from our time together. If you or someone you love feels like God is being silent, you might be right. And God's silence in your suffering, as it was for Job, it can be painful, it can be deafening. It was painful for Job. And it was painful for Job because of Job's theology, because Job didn't want things from God. Job really wanted God. He wanted to dwell with God, to be in God's presence. Job wanted to be comforted by the full embrace of God's love. And in that silence, he couldn't feel it. And in that moment of deafening silence, Job took a moment to realize this truth. Job realized that he needed to seek wisdom so that he could understand what was going on, so that he could continue to draw near to God, to seek wisdom. He understood he is to seek God, to fear God, to be in awe of God, to revere God. Because when God's silence is deafening, that's when he wants us to remember to seek our Savior. And I'll be honest with you, that's probably the last thing you want to hear. You're suffering through silence, trying to understand where is God in all this? And somebody says, oh, go seek him. It would be so much easier just to curl up in a ball as God's deafening silence engulfs you. We are in such a unique situation in our generation in that literally every single person born um, before the year 2019 knows what that feels like to be engulfed by silence. But this is the lesson that Job offers us. That in the silence Stop. Seek God. Because we have a promise. And this promise comes from Lamentations chapter 3. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 31 to 33, this is a promise given. It says, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. He brings grief, but he shows compassion. 
so great is his, God's unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. In the silence, I hope we can seek the Savior because we have a promise. His love is so great. His compassion is so unbelievable. No one is cast off by the Lord forever.